0: Hello, everyone. You're listening to Earworm, a Ramble On production by Drift Magazine. I'm your host, Eli Lang. In this show, you'll hear from experts and members of the community about all things environmentalism and sustainability. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Mary Poteet who teaches and conducts research within the School of Geological Sciences at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, we'll primarily be talking about urban watersheds. More specifically, Dr. Pratit and I recorded our conversation along Waller Creek, which runs through the UT Austin campus.
1: My work has always focused on how Humans interact with the natural system and really interested in how our actions can alter really complex ecosystems.
0: I didn't see much of what you're doing currently, but I did see you had a big report you had worked on with other people about Barton Springs and some other um, aquifer. In
1: yeah, South that was it. So that project was with the US Geological Survey. And it was a big group of us, a big team of scientists doing collaborative work to try to project what will happen with climate in 2050 in this area, which is a karst system, relative to a karst system in South Dakota.
0: Right, okay. I was gonna say. I'm not completely sure where the karst system is. Mm -hmm. I I think a lot of the listeners might not know what an aquifer is. So I was wondering if you could just explain both of those things.
1: So karst is a type of geologic formation that occurs in rocks that are easy to dissolve. So this is rocks like limestone, which is a calcium carbonate, and dolomite, which is magnesium and calcium carbonate. So all around Austin, pretty much any of the white rocks you see or the, the buildings that are built out of it is limestone, okay? So what happens is rain, when uh, rain falls on these rocks, rain is a little bit acidic, it gathers CO2 from the atmosphere and CO2 is carbon dioxide. When water gets a little carbon dioxide in it, it becomes a little bit acidic and when that rain hits our it's limestone, it can actually dissolve it. So over, you know, 20 million years, this rock begins to dissolve, and then maybe little fractures in the rock dissolve a little bit more, and eventually create um, caves and conduits and holes and things in the rock. So that's characteristic of karst. Karst is these dissolvable rocks that have springs and caves and um, conduits where water can flow through. And that's what we have, like when you see Barton Spring, that's a spring that's coming right out of the karst. So we're headed down to Waller Creek now. Um, West of here is really driven by karst aquifers. So um, from Barton Springs and west, we can really see the karst systems. And um, that's the, I was working along that zone in that, that report that you talked about called the Balcones Fault Zone. Here, it's kind of interesting, we're getting into a little bit of geology here. The um, Our whole central Texas is kind of dipping down towards the ocean. And what that means is that as central Texas dips, our older rocks are actually above us, to the west, and our younger rocks...
0: Hi, this is Eli from the Edit. Uh, While we were recording, a truck made a a really loud sound. So, in summary of what Dr. Petit said, while that truck was being so annoying, um, she just told us that the creek is not from a car system because it's not fed by spring water, and instead it's a groundwater system.
1: Normally wouldn't have this much water in it in the summer, right? You would expect it to dry out. But a lot of the water that is in Waller Creek right um, during the summer is municipal. So it's leaking sewage and leaking municipal water pipes. So most of the water in Waller Creek comes from us, from urban environment.
0: Yeah, That's kind of surprising, because I would have... Austin for very long. Okay. I would have guessed that Waller Creek had less water than it used to because I know a lot of creeks are drying up. So yes. I'm surprised to hear that there's more water.
1: Yeah there's so if you think about um so we're standing now next to Waller Creek and looking at it and you can see a pretty good flow you right. know for this kind of creek and um, when you think about it this creek generally flows around one cubic foot per second in the summer so that's like if you take a a foot cube on either side and think this is my volume of water that much water is passing by a specific point every second if you look at some of the rural creeks around here especially west of us on this kind of limestone bedrock their flow is zero in the summer So Waller Creek is actually flowing quite a bit now, and in the summer, 95 to 100% of its flow is municipal. And you can see right here in the middle of the creek, that is a manhole cover to our sewage system. So our sewage system in Austin and many urban areas runs straight down these creeks because where are you gonna run your sewage, right? It's it's gravity fed. We want it to go away from our homes and the easiest way to send it away from our homes is by gravity. And this creek has found the lowest point of our entire area and so have our municipal engineers. They use it to move sewage down. Is there like a visible
0: impact on the creek? Can you see, ever see sewage in the creek or like see plants behaving in a different way than they might near a creek that doesn't
1: have a sewage system nearby? You know, I don't know if you could, if you could stand at a creek and say, oh, there, right there for sure is some sewage, other than if you see raw sewage, right? Um, there was a period when our new engineering building had a bathroom that was plumbed directly to the creek by accident, and we did see raw sewage in the creek, and that was one of the sort of surprising things that I saw in the creek. Um, But really, for creeks that are getting a consistent sort of low dose of sewage, what that means is that they're getting a lot of nutrients, and those nutrients are translated into high levels of algal growth. So it's more like we see algal blooms, and those blooms could be due to sewage, it could be due to runoff from the landscape and nutrients and that kind of thing. So it's kind of hard to say 100 percent, I see that as sewage what we can do is, for research, go out and collect bacteria and say how many, how much fecal-indicating bacteria do we find? So like E. coli that would come only from mammalian poop, basically, right? And so I have a colleague who comes out and he measures the amount of E. coli in the creek and the E. coli that are associated with feces, and then we see really high levels of E. coli in
0: So how, I'm I'm gonna kind of assume that having more algae is gonna be bad for the creek, or am I wrong in making that assumption?
1: So that's a good question. Um, Algae produce, it's the primary producer in the creek, right? So it's photosynthesizing, it's moving carbon dioxide from the water into the plant and creating biomass. So a little bit of algae is important for the creek to provide that base of the food web. It's when you get so much algae in the creek that kind of chokes out um, other things. And let's see if we can see right here. Right now, there's, there's a pretty good amount of algae. You can look down in there and see sort of the brown and green bits but it's been scoured away a little bit because we just had a good rainfall last week. Um, If you get algae to the point where it's growing and almost growing out of the water, sometimes you can see big balls of algae growing out of the water, um, that can start to be a problem when algae overgrow because during the day, it's photosynthesizing, it's producing oxygen, everything's happy, But then at night, that algae respires, meaning that it kind of breathes out all of its carbon dioxide. And when it does that, um, the level of oxygen in the creek drops really low, almost to zero, and that can have a big impact on what can survive in the creek. Because creek aquatic- Does that
0: mean that the oxygen level varies more with more algae?
1: Absolutely, yes. You see huge spikes during the day and big drops at night. And so that's very stressful for the organisms to have to deal with that kind of dynamic. Yeah, so the the level of algae right now doesn't look too bad, but last week it was really high. And we actually went out and measured it. We don't have the final data yet, but um, it's something that we kind of keep track of. One of the things that I do in the creek is to, evaluate um, where the sort of base of the food web and the energy comes from. there's some of my students now. Um, So I measure the net rate of primary production for the entire year. And then I measure the amount of respiration for the year. And I evaluate something called stream metabolic regime. So what is really providing the majority of energy for this creek to support the food web? And in, say, a rural creek of this size, you would expect that primary production is almost as much as respiration, so that you have kind of this balance. In these urban creeks, because of um, the amount of nutrient input and kind of just organic matter that gets thrown in that's more urban, um, you end up getting a much higher respiration rate than, um, than photosynthesis. So, the decomposition of organic matter becomes much higher in these urban systems, um, higher than photosynthesis. And that's kind of a problem because the creek is not then able, it's not supporting Um, the system itself, it sort of becomes dependent on on external sources. I'm seeing that
0: all these post-its in the creek here. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what what this is that they're doing.
1: So this is actually um, our urban ecosystems class. And what we are doing right here is evaluating how much this creek captures leaves and we're using the green post-it notes as leaves so they're actually little pieces of paper that we've cut up so the idea is that creeks that are much more um, heterogeneous that have lots of roots and and rocks and um, um, shallow areas and deep areas and eddies and all this kind of thing that these kind of complex systems can hold organic matter as nutrients longer than systems that are just kind of um, channelized, right? Many urban creeks are are channelized and not very complex.
0: That pesky truck is back, or it's probably another truck, but um, I'm back here in the editing room to fill in. So I asked Dr. Petit what she meant by channelized, and she said that in a lot of urban creeks, there'll be concrete flanking both sides of the creek to control its flow um, so that it doesn't flood up onto the streets. And um, th- this section of Waller Creek was actually not channelized, and that she talks a little more about that.
1: And you see roots and rocks and movement and wiggles in the, in the channel. Um, and what this means is that uh, these roots and rocks and changes in channel direction can capture organic matter. So they're, um, they're trying to measure the retention ability of this creek um, in this section. I'm
0: seeing a little bit of concrete down there. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering how much the, the creek has been altered by, I guess, building in the area and how that affects the ecosystem.
1: Yeah, so the concrete that we're seeing is a a dike that's been dug across the creek and this I'm pretty sure is for some sort of facility, either a gas line or a water line or something that goes over there. Um, This part of the channel is actually pretty natural, so you can see we're standing on a bridge right now and the creek runs uh, by some big bald cypress trees across mostly natural limestone. There's one concrete dike that cuts through the limestone, and then it hits a a limestone wall and bends to the left. So all of this is natural ecosystem. Um, What we can see, let's go downstream a little bit, and you can see a really much more um, impacted part of the channel, where. in the, I think it was the 1920s or no, it was 1960s. That's right. In the 1960s, the Battle of Waller, Waller Creek was right down here along Sand Jack, and that battle was to um, prevent the stadium from moving out and causing the Waller Creek to be shifted and, and huh. trees to be cut. So if you don't know, was it successful? The battle, um, well. So there are always two sides. So one side was successful. I, I guess I um, the,
0: the not moving the creek.
1: Um, no, the creek was moved for the, for the stadium. And trees were cut, yeah. So that's down here along San Jack.
0: Do we want to head down there? Yeah, let's head down there. It's Eli from the edit again. Uh, while Dr. Petit and I headed down closer to the creek, it was kind of noisy. So to fill in for what uh, I asked her on the walk, I just asked about how the retention of the organic matter in the creek affects the ecosystem. Um, So here's her answer.
1: Yeah, so that's a good question. Urban creeks are generally considered to be more simple in structure than um, rural creeks because they're more engineered, right? We want them to go into certain places and not flood our infrastructure. So here we are walking behind the Alumni Center with this nice big wall here to our left that would prevent Waller Creek from flooding the Alumni Center, right? And so many urban creeks are kind of hardened by these hard walls or by bridges and dams to control the flow and control where it is and how much it is. So because of that, it tends to decrease the complexity of the channel, which means that it would decrease the amount of organics that would be um, retained. And those organics are really important for these little little creeks that have a whole lot of trees around them. Um, Meaning that when the organics like leaves falling in and twigs falling into the creek, um, provide nutrients for the creek. So if those nutrients are retained, Those are natural nutrients. Um, Insects eat them. There's fungus that helps decompose them. And once insects eat those, then fish are eating the insects and snails eat it. And so it really, um, having that organic matter is a good thing. So retaining organic matter, that's this natural tree fall, um, and leaf fall is is a good thing. So, in an urban system, what we often see, like, look here, this is pretty natural bank down there, but all this is hardened so that the creek can't move this way, right? So when we're, we're now looking at the creek, it's just straight and very simple and is not going to be able to capture as much leaf material and organics as, say, an, a rural creek that's allowed to move around and, and twist and turn. And because
0: that means there's less nutrients, that's a bad thing for the ecosystem?
1: Yeah, fewer nutrients would be a bad thing for the ecosystem. Fewer nutrients that are, that are like healthy, right? So it's sort of like a leaf um, decomposing or twigs decomposing in a creek is sort of like us eating some good fiber and nice vegetables and that kind of thing. Whereas the nutrients from sewage is sort of like sugar. So that would be um, there are nutrients, but it's not very complex and it's not a very um, it's not very healthy for for the creek itself. Does that make sense yeah yeah yeah, so we're going to walk down and look at um look at this part of um San Jacinto that was been sort of um, cantilevered out over the creek, and that has also been um so that the creek can't move. So one of the things um, that I find really interesting is the difference between the sort of short-term, like immediate-term impacts of urbanization and the, the potential long-term impacts of climate change, which are two big stressors on urban And, and those are different? Those are gonna be different, yeah, absolutely. I, I guess that makes sense. Yep. Climate
0: change is a bigger, wider scale thing, I guess not every creek is going to be affected by urbanization.
1: That's right. Yeah, the, exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, I do know that the, one One person in the audience wanted to know, once a creek has been very urbanized and the ecosystem has been affected, is there a way of going back to the old ecosystem or improving the ecosystem effectively?
1: Yeah, so that's a, it's such a good question. and. We, my group, Urban Ecosystems, and the Freshman Research Initiative is really interested in trying to help create a more sustainable creek and a a more functioning ecosystem, but it's never, a a creek in an urban system is never going to be the same as a creek in a rural system. It's just impossible, right? Because we have buildings that shade the creek, we're not going to get rid of the buildings. We have bridges and dams and they're not going to go away and we have landscaping and the landscaping changes the type of plants the shading on the river the type of leaves that fall into the creek and you know leaves have different nutrients in them so it's never going to be the same but what we can do is recognize what are the biggest stressors that urbanization has on creeks so those a publication some time ago Um, called urban stream syndrome, and it really identified what are the main stressors in creeks that we might actually be able to deal with that are caused by urbanization. One of the biggest stressors is flooding. And yeah, rural creeks flood, but when you're in a city um, and it rains, where does all that rain go? Is it seeping into the ground? Now. No, it's going onto pavement. It's going onto buildings. It's going onto all these hard surfaces that we built, and it has to go somewhere because we don't want it on our pavement, right? We don't right. want it where cars are going to be driving. We try to get it away from our infra- infrastructure as fast as possible, and the best way to do that, and you can see it right here, <laughs> is to send that water into the storm drain and those storm drains go straight to the creek. So what we effectively do is take water from the entire watershed, like water up on Guadalupe and water up on Red River and send it in the storm drains and send it straight to Waller Creek. So this happens in every city. And what that means is that these creeks then are subject to really fast, intense flooding because of urbanization. And that then simplifies the channel because it basically reams it out and gets rid of wood and sticks and changes the rocks and moves everything around. Um, And it's really stressful on the, the plants and animals that live here. So, I mean, look at this, what we're seeing right now is Waller Creek fairly straightened and there are no, undercuts. There's just like this solid limestone bedrock on one side and a bank that comes in on the other side and there's no place for fish to hide. So during a flood what happens to the fish? They just go up. (laughs) They well it's so intense they can't swim through it. I I mean this this little creek we're seeing a very you know maybe two cubic feet per second flow right now and then look at that level of leaves up What is that maybe seven feet above the level of water right now yeah that's where the last flood was and that was a small rain how often does it flood it floods every time it rains so every time we get a like half an inch of rain in a few hours this will flood and um, you can actually go see it for yourself so the lcra the lower colorado river authority has a stream gauge on this creek that that you can go look at and see when Waller Creek flooded last, ha- and it shows the discharge through time called the stream hydrograph.
0: And How long does it take to discharge?
1: Well, that's another really good question because in urban creeks, because there's no real storage of water in the soil, because we don't have a lot of soil that's showing, um, those floods are they happen fast they're really intense they um, have much higher discharge than they would if we didn't have all this impervious cover and then they drop back down really fast and the reason they drop back down really fast is because the water that should be stored in the in the land surface isn't there and so there's nothing to slowly feed that rainfall back into the creek because all the rainfall's in the creek so it can happen, like, it starts to rain, we get a whole lot of rain, the creek floods at about the same time as there's rain because it happens really fast, and then when the rain stops, the creek stops flooding within four or five hours, sometimes 10 hours. It's really fast.
0: But that is pretty fast, yeah. I know, um, I heard that Friendswood, in terms of the design, um, the, the suburb of Houston, the what? Uh, Friendswood, Texas. Oh, uh-huh. That the design there was just really bad in terms of allowing for water to go away and it would cause really bad floods. And so I'm wondering, Austin's design, how that compares. Is flooding a huge worry here or is the design good at, at getting the water where it needs to go to prevent
1: flooding? Yeah. The creek floods um, and every creek in Austin floods The Shoal Creek has had some really significant flooding. Waller Creek has had significant flooding downtown. And then Onion Creek was one of our biggest problems, which is um, south of the lake. And that um, caused a lot of flooding in neighborhoods south of here multiple times over over the past decades, Uh, to the point where the people, their houses were being inundated really frequently. So the city actually bought the houses up and just are now allowing the creek to flood in that area because it was a floodplain and, um, and now it's a parkland. But what we've done for Waller Creek is um, a really expensive fix. So downtown, um, Waller Creek runs through all of that business district, right? Right? down near red river across fifth street sixth street fourth street all these really expensive properties and it would flood and so places like easy tiger and Stubbs and all these places that are right along the creek couldn't regularly um, you know couldn't build out over the creek and kind of use the creek as a um, a draw right and that's what the the business district downtown wanted so um So the city and I don't know who else um, got $160 million together, I think it was, to build a Waller Creek Flood Diversion Tunnel just down here at Waterloo Park. So if you've been down to Waterloo Park, you can see this big inlet in the middle of the creek, and all of this creek flow you see here goes down that inlet into a tunnel that goes under the city of Austin and out to Lady Bird Lake. So anytime we have significant rainfall, the rainfall that would normally drain into that part of the creek goes down into that tunnel and gets out, goes out into Ladybird Lake. And so that's one way that the city has prevented flooding downtown. Huh.
0: So in terms of the ecosystem,
1: oh, so how, how does that how <laughs> does that affect the creek and how does that affect the lake? So that, you know, the idea was that. We would take this um, dirty kind of sewage ridden water from upstream, send it down into the lake where it would be diluted because there's a lot more lake water than creek water. And then we would pump lake water up into um, the creek starting at Waterloo Park and downstream and we'd have this nice clean water. That hasn't really happened, but they're still working on the creek. When when Um, you say pump it up,
0: like: What do you mean by that? I <laughs> tried to imagine
1: this in my head. Yeah, you may need to have a visual on your on your podcast here. Uh, so um, Waterloo Park is right around 14th Street, just what? four blocks from us. and um, it's uphill from Ladybird Lake. There is a 20. 20-foot diameter, it may be 25-foot diameter tunnel that is now under our city that drains Waller Creek water down to the lake. But the lake water also inundates the tunnel. Okay? And then there's a pump right near Waterloo Park that goes down to that lake water that's in the tunnel and it sucks it up through a motorized pump and pumps that water out into Waller Creek downstream of Waterloo Park.
0: That seems like a very complicated solution (laughs) to a problem.
1: (laughs) It's worked. It removed 20-some acres of land out of the floodplain. So that 20-some acres is no longer flooded and there's a big economic impact of that, right? So um, there are parks that have gone in, uh, there are parks that are going in. Waterloo Conservancy is the group that's um, helping design the parks and implement the parks. And then the idea was that they would also kind of re-engineer some of the creek to create more of those backwaters and places where fish could find refuge from, from any flooding and that kind of thing. The problem is, I've been saying over and over again, we have about one cubic foot per second flow up here in the natural part of Waller Creek. Downstream of the tunnel, that pump that is engineering now pumping water from the lake into our creek cannot efficiently pump below about five cubic feet per second. And so if you look at that, one of those hydrographs, the the, um, Lower Colorado River Authority stream gauge shows that the creek downstream from the tunnel usually flows at five to 10 CFS. So that's like five to 10 times our normal flow of Waller Creek, but it doesn't allow floods some flooding's good right so flooding kind of cleans out the gunk if there's a whole lot of algae like we were saying last last week we had massive algal growth and then we had a flood and it it turned cobbles over and moved gravel around and scoured out all of the algae and kind of cleaned everything up that doesn't happen downstream of the tunnel anymore and so what we see downstream is this big buildup of kind of sediment and bacteria and goo on the rocks, so there's not a whole lot of algal growth down there anymore. So one of the things we do is measure, like I said, primary production and respiration over the years. Um, and we see downstream, there's very, very little primary production anymore, relative to upstream and then relative to rural, right? So we see a whole lot of respiration
0: of just... Well, can, can you just remind me what primary production is?
1: Primary production means that algae that are growing and capturing carbon dioxide and making biomass to support the food web. So it's photosynthetic.
0: Um, So is there like an initiative to, to every once in a while, clean up the creek down there? Or it just, it's gonna get dirtier and dirtier? Uh,
1: So they're still working on finishing the whole design. And part of that means They're still working on putting in some of the parks. I think they're still working on putting in some of the engineering in the creek and cutting the creek banks back so that people can interface with the creek and that kind of thing. Um, The city itself, the Watershed Protection Department has been a vocal advocate for um, changing the flow dynamic using the pump to try to increase flows in the creek when we don't necessarily have um, rainfall, so that it kind of has more of a natural flow regime. Um, so there's definitely people who are pushing to try to create a more how, natural system. How would them.
0: increasing the flow be more natural?
1: Well, I mean, that's a that's a good question. So uh, let me clarify: increasing the flow like a flood. So Sort of pushing a large amount of water through to kind of scour out all the gunk and the goo so that it cleans it up and the algae are not suffocated. So this
0: wouldn't be a constant thing, it would just be every once
1: in a while. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, more like a flood. So that's kind of what happens in the Colorado River down through the Grand Canyon, right? So the the water's coming out of a dam, the Grand Canyon is this big river, and if it's just a constant flow, you don't have movement of gravel and creation of gravel bars and that kind of thing and so um there's there was a big push i think about 20 years ago to try to create more natural flow in these dam controlled environments and that's what needs to happen i think downstream of this tunnel um
0: just thinking about the students upstream Mm -hmm. is there a way that students have become involved with planning for the creek or researching the creek
1: yeah, absolutely. So our um, freshman research initiative is almost all of our 80 students do work in the creek and they do research in the creek. So all of the work I've done on metabolic regime, that's uh, a set of students. They've presented at meetings, they're getting ready to publish their, their um, results. I have students who've worked on algal production, students who've worked on decomposition, students who've worked on um, dissolved organic matter in the creek, um, those folks who were looking at particulate matter flowing around and retention of particulate matter so and that's just about that's only about 30 students and then my two colleagues, Ruth Shear and Stuart Reichler have a whole other set of students who are looking at toxins in the creek and p- polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons in the creek and heavy metals in the creek and so we have we have a large group of students every year. We have 80 students who are in the creek um, asking questions and, and learning about what's going on with this system. Making it more sustainable, I think there's there's more of a push to do that. Um, the Office of Sustainability here has been very supportive of um, creek research. There's, a, there's now actually a um, I think it's on the Office of Sustainability website, a tour of Waller Creek where you can just take your iPhone and walk along and listen to um, listen to information about the creek as you walk from station to station. So there's, there's definitely on campus a big push for that. And then the City of Austin Watershed Protection Department is really forward thinking about their creeks, <laughs> creeks in Austin. So they've done trash surveys to try to figure out where's the trash coming from and how do we get rid of it. They've done um, modeling to try to figure out how can we slow down these big floods that you see caused by urbanization. Um, so yeah, there's there are a lot of people working on it. It's just really, it's a wicked problem. This urbanization, creek ecosystems, and then throwing climate change on that. And it's just gonna be really hard to figure out. Right.
0: I am just thinking about what you were saying. Um, I heard you mention heavy metals.
1: Heavy metals, like, yeah. It was not like rock bands or anything. Um, so heavy metals are on um, a certain side of the, of the um, um, you know, chemical column and um, chemical elements columns. And it's things like lead and arsenic and zinc and all these things that have a negative impact on our ecosystem. So zinc is produced by things like welding materials, so buildings that are being constructed. It's in um, our brake pads on vehicles. And anytime you're using your brakes or welding anything, you know, zinc gets into the atmosphere or falls on the ground and then gets washed into creeks. Zinc has a really negative impact on the little insects that live in creeks and fish eat the insects, so it has a big impact on food webs. Um, Lead, even though we don't use leaded gasoline anymore or leaded paint, um, Ruth Shear's student group has actually detected lead downstream of some of these bridges because the paint that was used on these bridges years ago had lead in them. So there's lead in the creek. and I have a student right now who's doing a survey of, of heavy metals, like the metals I mentioned, um, following rainfall. So how much, um, how much of these heavy metals are brought into the creek with just runoff from, from our roads. Does it
0: have a huge impact on the ecosystem or is it hard to, to determine because there's so many factors? Or...
1: Well, the cool thing is um, we can look at concentrations of these metals and measure the concentration and then the environmental protection agency has maximum criteria for um, for how much metal you can have before it affects the ecosystem so we can just go look it up and we can say here's our concentration and here's what epa says are we above that level or below that level and that epa concentration is determined by a whole lot of toxicity research where you know, researchers take the heavy metals, add it to water in certain concentrations, and look at how the, you know, their target organism survives it or not. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's research that, that can at least give us an idea of what's happening in the creek. This little creek right now, it's so impacted by urbanization that um, most everything that lives in here now is really tolerant of pollution. Because all of the intolerant species have been um, have been killed off, and that you know every urban creek you see that signature. And so what we want to see is if we can stop some of the sewage input, which actually the city's trying to trying to fix their sewage system right now. Um, if we can prevent um, metals from getting in the creek, if we can ask people to stop using pesticides on their lawns, and too much nutrients that we'll get in the creek, then, you know, maybe we'll see some of these really um, less tolerant, um, yeah, less tolerant species start to come back into the creek. But it's still a natural system, right? There's largemouth bass in this creek.
0: I'm surprised. I, I haven't seen any fish. Yeah. I was, I was about to make a comment saying that Yeah,
1: I was let's go. Do you want to walk down there? Sure. Okay. Um, the, the bass are... Just downstream from here, and there's a big, uh, a big pool where they live. There's snapping turtles here. There I are other turtles. Yeah, and then there are fish that reproduce in here, the um, long-eared sunfish. So if you look closely, you can see all those little fish swimming oh, yeah, down yeah. through there. Yeah, those look like mosquito fish. There's stone rollers in here. And if you're interested, there's an app called iNaturalist, the letter I, naturalist. And we have a group for Waller Creek Biodiversity, Waller Creek Watershed Biodiversity. And we would love for people to take pictures of natural organisms, plants, animals, and upload to that so we sort of know what's, what's in our area. But we have, I think, I'm trying to remember, over 1,000 species of, of animals. And plants in the database. That's great. Yeah, how I how may be wrong, knowing, could be hundreds. <laughs>
0: how does knowing what is in the system help with research?
1: Well, there's um, some really uh, kind of well-established levels of um, levels and species of, of insects, aquatic insects, that can tell you whether the ecosystem is kind of healthy right and so the species that are really intolerant to pollution or less tolerant to pollution if they're here then we can say this is a pretty clean ecosystem and it's a pretty well functioning ecosystem Um, also if you think about diversity like diversity of algae diversity of fish anytime you have diversity of species it means that you probably have multiple species who can do the same thing, right? Who can grow and feed the same fish. But once you start to reduce the number of of species of algae or the number of species of fish, then that redundancy starts to decrease, which means that the creek becomes a little more unstable. It means that that if that species is impacted and it's the only one that does that function, then you might lose the function in the system. So diversity really kind of helps create a more um, stable system that allows for certain species to you know, increase and decrease, but still have the functioning of that, of that ecosystem there. So I've kind of focused all on the, the urban bits, but one thing, you know, there's a lot of nature here, and this is one of, the, I think, the most beautiful spots along the creek. But if you look over there, you see that bedrock, that's all limestone this is austin chalk
0: Chalk, just going back to the karst thing does Mm -hmm. that does the creek um dissolve some of that and does that end up in the creek at all yeah absolutely
1: it does um but this is not a this is not um, a karstified creek in the sense that there are not lots of little springs coming out into the creek and you don't see caves and that kind of thing um that's really we're in what's called the confined zone on top of the karst aquifer, which is below us.
0: Okay. Okay. And, and an aquifer is just like a big spring? or?
1: Well, no, an, an aquifer, so there's a groundwater zone underneath yeah. us and that zone, um, anything below the saturated zone is an aquifer. Okay, so it could be an unconfined aquifer, meaning it's just sort of flowing into the low points of your watershed, like creeks, or it could be a confined aquifer, which is what Edward's aquifer is down below us. There's a-
0: As in like the water table below the-
1: There's a water table, then there's like a, a layer of clay or something that's impervious. And then there's an aquifer below that in porous rock that's permeable. So um, these karst systems around here, the, the karst aquifers have porous rock, meaning it has lots of holes in it, right? And it's very permeable, meaning there's space between the holes where water can flow back and forth. So that's what a karst aquifer um, is characterized by. And um, well, all, all really good aquifers that you dig a well down and have to be permeable and porous. Um, so if we were to poke a hole <laughs> down into um, the Edwards aquifer below us, 100 feet or so below us, um, water might come out right, of that aquifer and come through here. But that's not the water that we're seeing I here. See. Yeah.
0: It's Eli from the edit again. This time, it wasn't a pesky truck that interrupted our conversation. It was a really aggressive bird. Um, anyway, while that bird was chirping away, I asked Dr. Petit about uh, the bedrock that she started talking about earlier in the conversation. Um, And so here's what she has to say.
1: If you look over there, you see that kind of crack, the crack in the rock yeah. right there. And you can see on the right side, there's uh, let's see. this one's not as there's obvious. Also one down there like yeah, that. but you can kind of see um, a layer of rock in in this to the right side, and it kind of drops down a little bit on the left side think it changes shape. Yeah. So that's actually a fault, a fault line where, yeah, so you can walk along Waller Creek and see fault lines and see where the rock has shifted.
0: Does that mean this is like an earthquake growing area? Or?
1: Well, we had a lot of earthquakes back 30 million years ago <laughs> um, and that's what the Balcones fault zone is. That's, that's the whole hill country. Um, this part of, of Texas faulted down off of the hill country and created the, the springs, basically. So, um, But yeah, this is a very faulted and fractured system, but it's not one that's going to, you know, we're not going to get a big earthquake anytime soon. These are ancient.
0: Guess what? Those pesky trucks are back, so I'm here in the edit room to fill in what those trucks must have drowned out. Um, so I asked her about, aside from what the organizational efforts were to help these ecosystems and combat climate change, what are the things that we can do at an individual level to help with, um, the environment?
1: So there are a couple things. There's like grassroots things, right? Like, um, helping clean up the creek or, uh, doing trash pickups, um, getting involved politically, going to things like, um, organizations like Save Our Springs, or going to the city of Austin and talking to Watershed Department, or you know, listening to some of the, going to their websites. They have a lot of their initiatives posted on their website, so they can you know figure out if they can get involved that way. But I think the biggest thing is voting. So the biggest thing to change our environment, and especially to change how our country approaches climate change, which we didn't talk a whole lot about, but maybe you can do a whole new podcast on that with somebody else. Um, The biggest thing we could do is vote. Um, Catherine Hayhoe, who is a climate change communicator and climate change scientist out of Texas Tech, says that about 40% of climate change is our individual actions, and 60% is how we vote. Because it really... It's a lot, i voting. It, well, those are the people legislating, right? And, right. And so if you, in, you know, back in the 1990s, climate change was not a controversy politically. Everyone agreed climate change is a problem. George Bush said, I will fight the greenhouse effect with the White House effect. And he was all about, um, he developed the US Global Change Research Program that still reports to Congress on what's happening with climate change. But um, soon after he said that, he was lobbied and, by certain um, factions and told that dealing with climate change is too expensive. Uh, what we know now is that if we actually invest in research and development, in new technologies, in renewable um, energies, that we're actually going to be doing a lot for the economy. So, so voting is, is big now. But okay. So now we're looking at uh, the San, San Jacinto right here at the uh, stadium. And you can see how the, the road basically comes out over the creek.
0: Right. I, I had no idea it was like this. Oh, okay. really?
1: Yeah.
0: I don't know. I've walked by here so many times and I've never noticed
1: this. Yeah. So this creek used to be over there, uh, closer to the stadium. And in the 1960s when UT was winning so many football games, the powers that be decided we needed a bigger stadium. So there used to be all these big old trees right where San Jacinto is now. And um, those were all cut to move the stadium out and move the road over and move the creek over. And so now the creek is confined by a big wall that is rock and concrete. And if you walk along it, You'll see that it's starting to crack and, and um, erode away, so it'll be an interesting, interesting thing to see
0: the future. Or the <laughs> <industry wins. laughs> yes.
1: Oh, the creek will win, but then humans have to come and do something about it. Yeah. So if you're, you should look up the battle for Waller Creek, um, which was in the 1969. Um, the School of Architecture played a big role in trying to prevent this um, development from happening
0: you mentioned uh, renewable energy Mm -hmm. and i was just thinking about how there's a power plant right next to the creek
1: ah yes i'm wondering does
0: that have an impact on the creek is is there (laughs) like heat from the power plant that ends up there or gas that leaks out or
1: you know that's a good question i have not studied that specifically i have not seen any i personally haven't measured any big changes in how in the creek water um nearby that, they don't emit any of their water into the creek itself, right? And the only thing I can think of, and this is something we don't measure, is that the burning of natural gas may um, you know, produce some sort of air pollutant that could eventually land on the creek, but there's, you know, these cars coming by the creek probably have more impact than, than the power plant itself so um, but that's a really good question i think the the biggest impact that buildings around here have on the creek is that all these buildings get water in their basement because they're um, often below the groundwater table and so they have to pump the water out and when they pump the water out they pump it straight into the creek so there's a whole bunch of water that kind of mixes in these basements and then gets pumped into the creek that have certain signatures of nutrients and um, potential metals. I'm not, I I can't say for sure what all is in there, but it definitely is part of that municipal input of water into the creek.
0: Sounds like if in the future if they build new things next to the creek, they shouldn't put basements.
1: (laughs) They shouldn't put basements, or there's a pretty simple fix. And if you go over to the Dell um, Medical Center on Waller Creek, you can see what that fix is. And it's to put in little detention ponds where you pump your water into the detention pond that has engineered soils that actually clean the creek water or clean the water before it goes into the creek. So there are lots of ways, it's called low impact design, lots of ways to slow water from going into the creek during flooding or to clean the water before it goes in the creek. And those are a little bit costly, but I think in the long-term, environmentally, it makes sense.
0: I guess as we're wrapping up, Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if there's anything that you wanted to talk about that uh, we didn't, or (laughs) anything you wanted to go a little more in depth on.
1: Um, I don't think so. I feel like I've covered a lot of Topics, yeah. but are there any? Is there anything that you feel like needs to have more depth to it?
0: I guess just a fun question. Is All there right. anything super shocking or weird that you've seen doing research? In
1: the I saw that question. Um Well, <laughs> I think the most shocking thing is when I'm doing. I was doing research down along 10th Street, and there's a large population of um, unhoused people there. And just um, walking down to the creek to collect samples and finding people bathing in the creek. And that's always, especially with students, kind of a a shock. And then you try to figure out, can you still go sample? Or, you you know, I feel like it's invading people's privacy because it's basically their home now. So I think... Those are the most shocking moments I've had, and part of it is shocking that we allow people to live like that in Austin, you know, and that that there's not anything being done. And so I think that um, there's a lot of pointing fingers at the unhoused people to say, well, they're part of the the problem of pollution on the creek because they're littering and all this kind of thing. But I think. The problem is that we don't we don't provide services to help those people find a better solution. So
0: that's my. So does that have a significant enough impact where having people not um, bathe in the creek and live by the creek, would that significantly improve the ecosystem?
1: It would significantly change the amount of trash that we find in the creek downstream. Really? That's yes because they have nowhere to put put their trash. And they have nowhere, they have no bathrooms. So there's, um, you know, there we use water to get rid of our, you know, in our bathrooms and so do they. (laughs) So it would significantly improve the quality of these creeks in many ways. That is, very unexpected. That's, uh, that's <laughs>
0: not what I would have thought is like a, a big problem.
1: So. Um, yeah. And I, it's something that Waterloo Conservancy is th- thinking about you know, because they want to create a, a series of parks connected by trails that are um, places where people can go, you know, families or anybody can go down there and enjoy the creek. And right now, it's a, a large, um, port, you know, a large portion of our unhoused people are living along the creek. So it's it's not right now a safe space for everyone. And that's a, you know, how do you deal with that? Right. <laughs> Waterloo Conservancy doesn't have the funds or the people to be able to deal with it. So it's
0: so now uh, now I'm seeing why you say voting is the, the biggest thing. <laughs>
1: Is, voting is yeah.
0: better, for, better um, focus on funding to climate change or even housing. And mm-hmm. I, I guess the more I learn, the more I realize <laughs> everything's intertwined somewhere.
1: Yeah, that's why it's called a wicked problem. Wicked problems are those problems that are, that span many, many disciplines and don't have a solution. And it's. To deal with wicked problems, you just look for the best solution, but but not the solution, right? There's never, we're never going to get rid of these problems, right. but we can at least work on them from, from a multidisciplinary approach. Right. Yeah.
0: Oh, thank you so much. You have been listening to Earworm, a Ramble On production by Drift Magazine. Drift is a student-run outdoors and environmental publication at the University of Texas. Title music by Alejandra Gavilanes. Special thanks to James Sam for help with this episode. I'm your host and editor of the podcast, Eli Lang. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Earworm. Be sure to follow us at RambleOnATX on Instagram for sneak peeks at our latest episodes. We'll see you in the next one.